Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome to episode 225 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of the financial markets and financial planning. Our director of research and training, Nick Whitaker, is back on the show. Welcome back, Nikolai. Always good to be here. Love having you on. Mark is uh, busy with other um, Jessup Wealth Management business-related items. So as always, we will quickly quickly review the month-to-date and year-to-date performance of the major market indices that we track. This data is from YCharts and is as of November 1st. Mr. Whitaker? Yeah, uh, the S&P 500 is up 1.1% month-to-date and 10.4% year-to-date. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 0.7% month-to-date and 0.4% year-to-date, so about even. The NASDAQ Composite is up 1.6% month-to-date and 24.8% year-to-date, so very much leading the market. Yep. The iShares Russell 2000 ETF, think small caps, is up 0.6% month-to-date and down 5.1% year-to-date. The Vanguard uh, FTSE All World X uh, US ETF, think uh, developed international, mm-hmm. uh, is up 1.0% month-to-date and 1.1% year-to-date. Again, pretty flat. Our yields, lots of discussion in the yield markets, which we're going to get into later in the podcast. Yep, the three-month... Listeners and viewers are going to love that. Yep. The three-month is currently sitting at 5.57. The two-year is sitting at 4.95. And the 10-year is sitting at 477 so my initial reaction, I said it in the podcast about two, three weeks ago, Nick, I want to say it again. I can't, I can't say it enough. If you went to sleep on January 1st and you just woke up and you see the return year to date for the S&P is 10.4%, makes it appear like a pretty easy year, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Right? Yeah. And not, not the case. It's been a fist fight. Yeah, you know? not the case. I mean, people got blisters on their hands. Lots of up and down. Lots of, lots, lots of lots of headwinds, lots, lots of, of reasons not to be invested into equities all year. Mm-hmm. But look, S and P's up ten point four percent, and that's after a bit of a difficult couple of months too. Interesting, isn't it? It is always. You want to talk about uh, some of the big headlines? You want to talk about the headline? Yeah, sure. Um, just one major one for you today, because we are going to talk about the Treasury market, which has been in the headlines a little later. But the U.S. Jolts uh, reported job openings increased 56K to 9,553K in September, um, which is which is uh, pretty good. It's uh, the highest level since May. Uh, there were 1.5 uh, available jobs per unemployed job seeker. Um, which is which is pretty pretty solid. So, do you have any any follow-ups there? Yeah, I mean, my initial reaction, and, and, and Jenna, our producer of the podcast, is going to think I'm a broken record on this, Nick. I mean, this is not this is not bearish, right? No. You know, you got a lot of people who have been habitually calling for a recession, and the justification's pretty simple in their minds. There's no way the Fed can raise interest rates to the magnitude they did without causing a recession. Well, guess what's completely blowing up their thesis month after month after month? Strong economy. Strong economy. The data is just screaming strong. Yeah. 
And so, you know, at some point, if, if everybody in Wall Street continues to talk negatively, you know, perception at some point could become reality. But just based upon this data, you know, pre-COVID, um, we didn't have this many job openings. No. And so I just think it's just something that needs to be noted. And I would say sentiment of the market continues to be very negative. But if people just get their heads above water and start looking at some of the data, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a little stronger than people are giving it credit for. It is. It is. And we talked, uh, Mark and I talked about that maybe a, a week or two ago. Um, we dove into some, some Bloomberg articles about um, you know, maybe why the data has remained strong despite these, these rate yeah. hikes and, and get into that. And I, I still think, you know, it's, it's printing money and giving money to the consumer. And then you add that with, with the work from home, it opens up, it has opened up a lot more job opportunities, which I think has, has helped the, the, the job market a lot. So, Good way of saying it. I yeah. agree. I agree. Um, for time management, Nick, are you okay if we start tweets, articles, and research from the week? Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump into it. Uh, just for the record, I'm still going to call them tweets. I just, I've come to the personal conclusion. <laughs> I'm going to call them tweets for about the next year, and then I'll reevaluate in Q1 of 25. Is that fair? That's Jenna, is that fair. fair for you? Okay. Jenna, Jenna nodded. She's in agreement. So my first piece is a tweet from Charlie Bellello, and we're a big uh, fan of, uh, of Charlie's work. He does a lot of raw research. Mm -hmm. And so he had this post, Nick, on October 29th. And I'm going to um, verbalize it exactly. Quote, the S&P 500 is now down over 10% from its high in late July. That's the largest drawdown thus far in 2023. Is such a decline unusual? Question mark. Not at all. A 10% intra-year drawdown has happened every 1.6 years on average. Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes, Nick, uh, and all of our social media sites, um, X, i.e. Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, etc. What you're going to see here is it shows the intra-year declines of 1%, 5%, 10%, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, and 50. And then what percentage of years going back to the original data set of the S&P 500 to 1928? And for that 10% correction, it happens 63% of all trading years, okay? So let's call it a two-thirds chance. The reason I'm highlighting this is guess what, listeners and viewers, what you've experienced from August to now and all the reasons for the corrections will be different. It could be geopolitics. Yep. It could be inflation data. It could be employment data. It could be consumer spending data. It could be corporate earnings data. Mm -hmm. We are going to have corrections. That is the price you pay for equity-like returns over time. Mm -hmm. And I know it's something that people don't like to hear, but you got to hear it. Yeah. And this is not abnormal. Yeah. That's what I wanted to point out. Nick, you want to add anything? No, I think we talk about this a lot and remind listeners about this a lot and use different types of data to try to illustrate this point. But this is a pretty great way, a great statistic to think about it is, you know, 63% of the time. We're going to have a 10% correction. You're going to see the market fall 10% in, in, in a year. Yeah. And 94% of the time, you're going to have an intra-year decline of at least 5%. 
So what that means is you buy a stock or you buy some sort of stock market indice like the S&P 500, there's a good, good chance you could immediately lose 5% of your money right off the bat. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Just, yeah. it's again, without downside risk, there'd be no upside reward. And I just yeah. like to keep reminding our listeners and viewers that yeah. that trading activity is not abnormal. This, the stock market's a long game. It is, absolutely. It's not, it's not, it's not for checking in on, for the average person who's not in the industry, I don't think you need to look at, look at the market even monthly, arguably, um, you know, trust your, trust your advisors and, and trust your professionals and, um, and just don't get over, uh, follow your plans with Mark. Yeah. Over, over excited says, about, right? about the headlines and, and volatility. Cause it has, it happens every year. Happens yeah. all the time. So my second piece is the jobs market is still healthy. Now I prepared this piece, Nick, before the jolts, the job opening data came out. So this is a little different. So another, <coughs> excuse me, another underlying data point that points to no recession in the near future, in my opinion. This is a post, Nick, by Seth Golden. Seth posted this on October 30th. And he's showing this slide, and it says, layoff mentions across conference calls and news articles have continued to moderate. He goes, the unique mentions of layoffs in U.S. large cap conference calls in Dow Jones news articles, and it shows the peak actually in Q1 of 2023, and since that is moderated. And again, I like looking at anecdotal data. Back in the podcast over the summer, I referenced the word recession that was mentioned during conference calls in US large cap uh, conference calls. AI did an analysis of this. Mm -hmm. And it showed recession was through the roof being mentioned in Q1 and Q2 of 2022. Yeah. And guess what we had in both of those quarters? Negative GDP growth. Now, the government wanted to change the way it interprets a recession. I'm old school, baby. Two consecutive quarters, negative GDP growth. You can paint, you can paint the picture however you mm -hmm. want. That's a recession. Yeah. And the data backed it up. Well, you're now seeing more real-time data on layoffs that stuff peaked being talked about and mentioned in news articles and conference calls, Q1 2023. I look at that and that's not a bearish data point. No, not at all. And, and this type of data is, is really great. Um, FactSet pulls a lot of this, this type of data together. There are other, at Bloomberg, there are other research that one from over the summer was FactSet, for the record. Yeah, I, I see it most with FactSet, but I've also just spent a lot of time with the FactSet database, so I'm, I'm more familiar with it. So I've spent years seeing that data and kind of yeah. understanding it. But it's, it's important because what the data does is it pulls from, from conference calls from the CEOs, the CFOs, the COOs of the biggest, most important companies in arguably, arguably most important companies in the world and in the US who are dominating the earnings cycle and job growth and job decline. Well said. Yeah. And so well said. you're hearing it straight from, from, the, horse's the, from the horse's mouth, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, another time that we've used this and talked about in the podcast was the supply chain. 
very similar charts where you saw the supply chain. Everyone was talking about that and how that was impacting their business. And you saw that chart go up and you saw yes. it come back down. So it's good. It's good data. And it is, it's very telling to see what's on the, um, what's on the top of the minds of the biggest C-suites in, in the world. It is. And I remember back to Q1, as I think back now, there was a lot of layoffs in, say, the financial services sector mm -hmm. in, the, in the first quarter earlier this year. And guess and what that coincided with? That banking crisis in March. Yeah. Right? And then there was um, a pickup in big, big tech, and, and you saw some layoffs there. Over the summer. Over the summer. Mm -hmm. um, not crazy amounts, obviously, sure. because you look at the underlying data of the, the underlying econ jobs data, and it clearly wasn't enough to make those numbers just drop yeah. through the through the floor but you know there was articles about it still are i think i saw something this week or last week about another big company who's who's trimming some some jobs but nothing again nothing like of large magnitude right not like you know we're cutting 50 percent yeah i don't think it equals like with the sentiment that i'm feeling still in the marketplace i'll put it that way yeah yeah good way of saying it mm-hmm so my, my third thing is going to take us to a, a, a tad bit longer. This is a blog post by Brad McMillan on October 27th. Uh, Brad McMillan is uh, the chief uh, investment officer for Commonwealth Financial Network. Um, you know, Brad and his team uh, do oversee um, a lot of money, uh, literally billions mm -hmm. um, in, in portfolio strategy. Um, I respect Brad. He is a smart cookie. Uh, I crossed paths with him when I was on Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago, and as I'm talking on Bloomberg, I can see out of the corner of my eye and to the right, Brad McMillan's up next. And I'm like, all right, not only do I have the Bloomberg crowd listening to me, I got Brad McMillan staring at me right here. A little nerve-wracking. Yeah, yeah. So I'll share this with everyone. I want to read this, Nick. It's going to take me maybe two minutes, but I think Brad does a good job summarizing what's been happening over the past month. You ready? I'm ready. Here we go, October 27th, Brad McMillan, quote, this week was about the markets, which kept dropping, even as economic news continued to be good. Growth last quarter was well above expectations at almost 5%, and personal spending increased for the sixth month in a row, not bearish, Jenna. Despite that good news, markets pulled back again, with the S&P 500 looking like it will slide into a correction that is defined as 10%, down more than 10% from the most recent peak in August. He finished that for me. His next topic, side effect of economic growth. On the face of it, that decline doesn't seem to make much sense. But the unfortunate side effect of economic growth is that interest rates are likely to stay higher for longer. And that is just what the markets have started to realize. Interest rates stayed at almost 5% for the 10-year U.S. Treasury all this week. And last, as markets priced in higher for longer, in turn, stock market valuations, which move in opposite directions of rates, dropped from around 20 times next year's earnings to around 18 times. That's a big shift and explains the stock market pullback. What's next? What does this mean going forward? The good news is that at least for the moment, rates seem to have stabilized, which should limit any further valuation declines in the short term. Over the long term, the valuation adjustment should be offset by earnings growth, which is still expected to be strong over the next several quarters. With the economy still healthy and earnings expectations 
To grow, the current repricing looks like an adjustment rather than something worse. No one likes a market pullback, but with a solid economic foundation in place, we have some cushion here. The current decline at around 10% is quite normal. In fact, it's something we typically see around once a year. Even if it gets somewhat worse, that would be normal in something we would have seen many times before. Last comment, this is normal. In other words, while there wasn't a great week for the markets, this is a normal pullback that makes sense given financial conditions. From what we see right now, prospects for the market over time are still positive, and that is a good thing to remember as we finish the week. Have a great weekend. Pinned Brad McMillan. I agree. I think it's extremely well said and an excellent uh, recap on what's going on with, with the market and, and the bond market and the, the reason for, for the pullback. It's uncertainty, which we're going to talk about a little bit with the treasury market. Mm -hmm. And anytime you have uncertainty in the market, market uh, has to price that in. The market has to price that in and, and you see movement in, in assets. Um, it might be bonds, it might be international, it might be domestic, it might be everything. Um, it might be profit-taking off of some of the names that were, were, were decent. Yeah, um, that right? held the market that, up that held sure. the market up. So, um, and I, I think the, the point that jumps out to me that I'm seeing more and more, and I'm hearing really smart, sharp professionals talking about more and more, is this, this idea that the market is accepting is starting to accept this higher for longer mm. and maybe accepting that rates aren't going to go back down. We're not going to go back down to the, the post 08 bottom of the barrel interest rates where money is free mm -mm. anytime soon. Mm -mm. And we're, we're, we're basically getting back to what was the old normal yes. prior to yes. 2008, which I would argue is an excellent thing for life in general I is, agree. is an old normal because you know, zero percent interest rates, and and you know, get, look look across the seas uh, over at Japan, negative interest rates. I would argue that I don't I don't I don't see how that plays out well in the long run. I'm with you on this of of life. Yeah, I mean, again, <laughs> so. I said this so many times in the podcast. You know, in a interest rate environment that we're in, doesn't automatically spell doom for risk assets. It's rising inflation that tends to cause doom for risk assets. And I'm not seeing that in the inflationary data. Right. The market and the economy can do just fine mm -hmm. in a 4 5 6% interest rate environment. That's not the kicker. That's not right. the killer for it either. Right. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's and, and that's what Brad mentioned is you know, accepting this this higher for longer. I, sure. I think it's taken the market a while to really accept it. And now that we've seen this econ data month over month over the past six months come in and, and earnings is still strong. And Good point, because uh, people are scratching their heads. Wait a minute, how can the economy be like this with right. interest rates where they're at? And and so you see this repricing and, and then Brad makes an excellent point. Okay, we repriced the valuations back down. Where the valuations the highest? The valuations are highest and, and some of the, the high flying names that really led the market yep. higher, right? Where do you see some of the weakness over the past three months? Okay, some of those same names that led the market higher, who yep. also have higher valuations, who are also, one could argue some of those, some of those names that led the market higher um, are a little bit more interest rate sensitive. I, we could argue about that all day. Sure. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. I think he, 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 he did a good he, job. He nailed he? it, yeah. Turn it over to you, Nick. What do you got this week? 
I have two pieces, and the first piece is uh, it's a capital flows analysis from IHS market or from, I should say, S&P uh, Global Market Intelligence. Um, IHS market was bought by S&P Global uh, a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but this is research I'm very familiar with because uh, the, the person who put this out uh, I, I used to work with him. So. That is awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I knew you used to be associated with IHS Market. Yeah, so um, I've seen the the inside of this report. I've seen the back end of the data. So it's something it's something I understand. You actually know how the soup is made. I in this know one. how the soup is made. Yeah, it's a pretty cool um, a pretty cool set of data and, and very unique. Um, there are two charts that we'll throw up here, and and one is the six month cumulative capital flows across different types of investors, institutions, institutions, hedge funds, retail and index or ETF. And then it just charts the S&P 500 there. Um, I'm going to explain what those four categories are quickly. Institutional Please. institutional money is the big money, the, the big billion dollar uh, long only investors think uh, the capital group, which are American funds that listeners will be aware of those mutual funds, that, that group, it's $900 billion institutional money investor, T Rowe price, another one fidelity. There are, there are a lot of them yep. out there, but the institutional money is the big billion dollar. They're the behemoths on wall street. Yep. They're the ones that really, the, the issuers, C-suites, they want to work with institutional money because they're typically long only, mm -hmm. i.e. they're not shorting the stock, they're, they're running mutual funds, et cetera. Yep. That's institutional money, the big boys. Got it. Hedge funds are, they can be, they can be large, they can be really small. Um, they're, they tend to be uh, market neutral, uh, get a lot of news coverage, right? They're the guys who are think like, Think uh, Gordon the big, Gecko from back in the day, right? Or like the big short, right? Yep. Some of those guys were hedge funds, so uh, you know those Carl kind Icon, of Carl Bill Icon, Icon, Bill Icon, and, and those are some of the big ones. Um, yep. You might have heard of like Renaissance Renaissance Technology. So you have like quants that are fully passive strategies that are hedge funds. So a lot of volatilities. A lot of hedge funds blow up every year uh, because oh, yeah. they have such aggressive strategies. Uh, when I say blow up, I mean they like lose all client money. Yeah, lose lose everything, and they have to go find new jobs. Um, there are some very successful long term hedge funds, but anyway, that's like fast money. Mm -hmm. Think of that as like fast money. Yep. Retail is retail. Retail investors, mom individual and pop, investors. Mom and pop buying a share of of Apple on their uh, on their Vanguard account or whatever. That's uh, that's retail. And then index or ETF is passive money. So, i.e., um, a strategy, uh, an ETF that you would buy that's that's tracking the S and P five hundred. So, mm -hmm. um, like an SPY is yes. essentially just a proxy. It's an ETF of the market of Correct. the S and P five hundred. And so that's index money. So they're not trying to be, they're just following the market. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's passive money. Um, so that's a breakdown of, of what those, those few different categories are. And the, the way that this report is put together is with IHS markets, uh, basically, uh, um, insider data. So their clients are publicly traded stocks. So they see custodial data, um, behind this. And so this, this cumulative flow over the, the past six months, you can see institutions, the big money, the big boys at the table. Uh, you see they've been a, net sellers. They've been net sellers. Hedge funds are kind of back and forth. Retail has, has been picking up a little bit on the net selling. 
an index or ETF has, has been increasing. What's, what's particularly interesting to me is, is kind of the continued decline in the second half here. Uh, one thing we used to talk about back in this industry is um, whenever you have your, your long only, your big institution, as, as an issuer, as a, when I say an issuer, think like a stock, like the people who work behind the scenes of the stock, like the CEO of XYZ, right? Yep. As a CEO of XYZ, you want the institutional money buying your stock because they can help push the price higher because they're actively managed and they have a ton of money and they can push it higher. What you don't want to see is what's on this chart. You don't want to see long money only going lower and index money going higher because index ETFs, they're passive, so they don't push the bids. They just accept it. Yep. So that's this is one of the reasons, um, I think, uh, that we've seen some of the pressure in the market over the past three three months. Yes. Um, in, in my my opinion. Um, if there's another chart that we'll throw up here, and this is just from September, so we, you can see the, the flows, and this is just institutional cap, capital, the flows by sector yeah. in September. Uh, a little bit of stale data, of course, but that's how this industry works. Um, there's just a d delay in the data. Um, and you can see that they were net sellers across pretty much everything except utilities, which is a defensive, more risk-off trade. Yes. Um, and so just a quick comment on uh, the, the data and, and, and why I, I like it. And I, I, uh, it's, and there's nothing, it's not perfect. No data set is perfect um, when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, but it's basically, IHS will take all of their, their clients and they have most of the S&P 500 as clients and they see their custodial data. Yeah. And then they've, you know, this, this business has been around for decades and they've learned and tracked and studied this data. I know it very well. And, uh, and so they're basically just studying the flows of these different custodians that are, are where you know, hey, this custodian is typically an institutional custodian. This yes. custodian is typically yes. an hedge fund custodian. And they can track that over time and they basically take all of their clients. There's probably close to a thousand by now if I was guessing, but when I was there, it was around 800. And they put all this data together so they can create these charts. So That's it's pretty awesome. cool. It's that pretty is, cool data, awesome. and it's actually very unique. You, you don't see it anywhere. Um, I mean, you see it from from some of the from some of the banks, but not even, this way. I, I would even argue that this data is better than some of the the data that you would see from like a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley, which Love is that. probably a hot take. But I'll you, take the hot take. I'll take a hot take on a Thursday. You know what my initial reaction is on this also? Mm -hmm. When I see this institutional um, flows going negative, people have to remember that these large, large institutions cannot turn on a dime. Oh, not at so all. let's assume for a second, because everybody on Wall Street, for the most part right now, is a grumpy Gus, and they're very pessimistic. At some point, and this could take a long time, but at some point, if they want to be risk on, that's not going to be a one day, one week, two week phenomenon. No, not at all. It's like turning a cruise ship. Mm -hmm. It's going to take some time. It's like turning an oil tanker. Yes. Yeah. It's going to take a while. Yeah. And my biggest point is Wall Street, for the most part, has been underweight equities mm -hmm. since the middle of last year. Yeah. And at the top of the podcast, we just talked about it being a challenging year, but the S&P being up 10%. Talked about the NASDAQ being up over 20. I'm just gonna throw it out there. 
a lot of money managers are underweight equities and they're missing out on these returns. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, you gotta throw the towel in and realize that the underlying economic data is stronger than your sentiment and attitude is towards the market. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you gotta follow the data and not yeah. what your sentiment is telling you. Yeah, I wanna explain that to listeners when we say these big institutional behemoths, they can't turn on a dime and just make sure people understand Do that. that. Again, these are, these are billion dollar portfolios, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar names. There's only so much liquidity in a single stock. Correct. And so let's say a billion dollar investor wants a 5% exposure to XYZ. Yep. It's gonna take a billion dollar investor a lot longer to acquire 5% with the liquidity at hand. They, oh, yeah. they, they're not gonna be able in one day to go out and buy all the shares they need to gain a 5% access to their, their, for, for their clients. Yeah, but you take like Fidelity Contra, the largest actively traded mutual fund in North America, 120, 130 billion of assets. Yeah. It's run by a single guy, yeah. Bill Danoff. Bill Danoff, yeah. If Bill wants to buy something, okay, and it's a mid-cap name. Yeah, like initiate like a 3-4% like a exposure or something like that. I mean, if he does it too quick, he'll completely move the market in that stock. Yeah, and that's what I was talking about, about driving the yeah, price of the stock, driving the bids. Yeah. He'll literally move it. And so getting in and out of those names for long-only money, it takes, like you said, weeks and months because you don't want to push the price you too much. You want to hide your footprint to the best you of your ability. Right. And that's why I see suites like long only money because it's slower. They're talking to these consistent. investors. It's consistent. They're not going to turn on a dime as opposed to a hedge fund. Just who, dump it in one day. Right. Who will have complex strategies um, and, and are typically smaller so they can move quicker. So I, I just no, want to make sure. Yeah, uh, We're preaching and, and, yeah. and sharing, sharing knowledge. Yeah. Um, the, the last piece I have is I just thought we could we could open it up for a bit of a discussion on on Treasury refunding in the bond market. Uh, I saw this popping up in the news over the past week. Uh, it was in the news a lot yesterday. And so I just thought we could kind of break this down and debunk why is this in the news, explain what, what it is, talk about the bond market, what's going on. And I think Brad McMillan hit, hit the nail on the head. Um, as to the big picture, uh, which goes back to uncertainty. Um, but I want to want to start with just kind of talking about like what what is Treasury refunding. Um, All right, this is what I say. Okay, students on video and podcast, this is where you listen up. Nick's about to preach. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry in advance. I love this. <laughs> for, for so the these preaching. are what we call teachable moments. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a bit of a let's let's all learn together. Yes, front, learn together in, in in real time with real data. And, Professor and, uh, Whitaker yeah, is up. Yeah, yeah. P Professor Whitaker to to the mic. Um, so Treasury funding is is just when the the Treasury announces changing uh, changes in their debt management policy. Um, it typically comes in the middle of the quarter, um, uh, you know, two weeks prior to like a, a bonds expiring. Um, um, so in layman's terms, it's basically when the Treasury Department comes out and, and says how much aggregate debt they're going to refund from the bonds that are maturing, um, as well as if they're seeking additional debt or if they're saying, hey, we actually don't need as much debt. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, I'm just going to throw out really broad numbers here. The Treasury has $100 million of 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 notes, it's much higher in, in reality, $100, $100 million of notes expiring, uh, maturing, and they go out to the market and they say, 
all right, we're going to refund that. We want, we actually need to borrow another hundred million, but we're also going to issue another 10 million in excess. So yes. that's extra, uh, extra yep. bonds that they're issuing to the market. Yep. And we and still need money. to borrow that hundred that's coming due. So we're going to sell another bond because we still need that hundred million. Right. And in addition, guess what? In your example, we need another 10 million on top of that. Yeah. We need another 10 million because we just, Congress just passed this bill. We need some more money. The, yep. the treasury is running the government, right? The, the treasury helps fund everything that you hear about on Wall Street. That's right. Federal jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Programs, big programs. Social spending, spending, Social Security, social Medicare, security, Medicaid. Et cetera. Um, and so uh, that's what treasury uh, refunding is. Um, the, the, the next big piece I want to talk about here is why has the market and the media picked up on this recently? <laughs> and, and the reason I bring that up is because I've been in the market long enough to understand cycles and know kind of, all right, what, what typically comes up. And treasury refunding is not something that I see coming up on, on CNBC headlines that no. often. Because the treasury auction, that's what it call a treasury auction. They're usually very called. boring. Extremely boring. Um, it's it's like watching paint dry usually. It is very much like that. Um, and so I, that's one of the reasons I wanted us to talk about this mm -hmm. is just to explain to listeners why. Why is all of a sudden CNBC reporting on the Treasury refunding? You yeah. just don't see it that often. Um, and, and the reason there's CNBC, I read an article yesterday that they gave like one reason why. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw another, another article that gave like one reason why. It's not one reason. It's never one in my opinion, it's never one reason. The, the markets are extremely complex. There's multiple narratives. There's multiple participants doing multiple different things, right? Oh, there's yeah. so many moving pieces. It's not, there's not one reason. Um, debt deficits and bond yields are on the rise. And so the market is, is looking for reasons for that. Like, hey, what's going on with the yield curve? What's going on with, with the debt? What's going on with the so treasury? In plain English, the government is spending more money than it's taking in in revenue, yeah. and it's taking on additional debt, and the treasury is tasked with raising that money. Right. In a higher rate environment. That's right. Right. So um, their old bonds come and due, and they paid that, let's say, at a 2% rate, and then they got to roll it because they still need to borrow the money. Now they're paying 5 or 6%. Exactly, which means the Treasury now has a higher interest rate cost. Going forward, going carry forward, cost. Carry cost, yeah. exactly. So it's more expensive for the government to finance their debt, the there Treasury, right? So the, the, the reason that this topic has come up in, in the markets or in the media, it's a combination of concerns about the deficit, which we just spoke about, uh, supply and demand dynamics, um, which, I can, which I can go into a little bit, uh, geopolitics, concerns about global investors, there's risks there, yep. right? Um, and you could go at length about geopolitics. How involved are we going to get? Is that going to bump up our spending? Absolutely. How does it impact global investors who typically buy treasuries um, for their own safe haven for, for, for whatever reason? How does that impact the supply-demand uh, balance there? And then, and then lastly, I would say it's, it's concerns about stronger growth. Um, and going back to what Brad McMillan said, if we have stronger growth, then that means the rates are here to last longer. If the rates are here to last longer and the Treasury is going to have to borrow more money at higher rates, um, 
to fund its deficit spending. spending. How does that, how does that impact all of this? So those are kind of the the few different narratives that, uh, that are really driving why this was, was such front and center in the news prevalent in the news. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to skip to the end and then we can come back and and talk a little bit about the middle, but what happened with the treasury funding announcement, um, it, the market liked what what it heard. The uh, the treasury came out and, and the bulk of the additional borrowing. First off, the additional borrowing they refunded everything and then they added an, an additional. I think it was like ten, twelve million or something like that, or, or billion. Um, but it wasn't as much as the market was was fearing of. The, yeah. the market was fearful that the treasury was going to come out and and just blow way past the refunding and just ask for a bunch and of money ask for way more money. And that was going to stress the, the bond market out. It was going to stress bond investors out. It was going to stress equity investors out. Um, you would have seen a big reaction and, and stocks probably would have moved lower if that would have happened. Sure. That did not happen. The treasury came out, was very calm and, and collected as we expect our economists to be. Yes. And, uh, they refunded the additional amount, uh, or refunded, had a little bit of additional borrowing and the key is that it, most of the additional borrowing is going to be in that two to five year end as opposed to the seven to 30 year end. And I think that gave the market a little bit of, okay, cool. That's fine. Two to five years. We can hang with that. That's right. They um, don't want to overload the long end of the curve. Exactly. Um, and this is the perfect example of the learning moment. Can you explain that? They don't want to overload the long end of the curve. Can you explain that to listeners? Yeah. So what I mean by that is they don't want to be borrowing money from uh, investors with a long dated maturity. So they don't wanna go out and be borrowing money and asking people, hey, instead of me borrowing this money for six months or two years, I wanna borrow this money and I'll pay you back in 10 years, in 30 years. Mm -hmm. And when you start to see the government going out that far, the concern for the market is, well, wow, if you're locking in longer rated maturities, you must think US government that rates are either going to stay where they're at or actually move higher. Whereas if you're staying on the short end of the curve, shorter term maturities, U.S. government, that's you telling us that you think rates are going to come down. So you're not going to be trying to borrow a bunch of money and lock it in for a long period of time. Exactly. So the market wants to see the government overloading the short end of maturities, the short end of the curve, because it's telling the market we think rates are going to come in. It's like someone having a mortgage. You love having a low interest rate in your mortgage. This is why people aren't moving right now. Mm-hmm. People aren't moving because they got a sub 4% interest rate on their mortgage. Yep. Why are you going to go out and get one at 8%, right? Unless you really, really have to. Exactly. And, and the government right now is sending a message. Hey, we're going to stay on the short end of the curve because what they're telling me as an investor, we think rates are going to come down over the coming years. Mm-hmm. That's going to save us some money. Right. And so going back to why that was perfect, exactly what listeners needed to hear, by the way, <laughs> couldn't have said it better. Uh, I don't think anyone could have. That was, that was perfect. Thank you, sir. Uh, that was a, a, a perfect description. Um, and then going back to, okay, why is it in the headlines? All right, we knew what was going to happen with rates. We, the, the market was very confident that, because the, the rate hike was yesterday too. So yeah. we knew that the Fed isn't going to hike. We're not going to do anything. Uh, but this was really going to give the market an idea of the psychology the and a psychology mindset of where of the government we are. or what they think about interest rates. Exactly, because the yield curve right now is is 
it has been the, the long end has been drifting up a little bit mm-hmm. and is, is flattening out. And whenever you have that flattening, um, it's a, it's a good sign that there's a lot of, uh, uncertainty in the market, uncertainty around, around the economic conditions, un- uncertainty, which way it's going to go, which is why when you have times of uncertainty and the bond market, where are we going to look, going to look to the people who are, who are shelling out the supply and, and yep. the demand, right? <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, <laughs> yeah, um, I think I think that that covers it. I don't I don't need to to go too much into the weeds here. I have some more. But is there anything else you wanted to to kind of discuss on uh, this specific topic? On this specific topic, anything else? I guess my last comment is is that the market goes through different obsessions in different time periods, and an obsession right now is how much debt the uh, government continues to take on with deficit spending. And this is gonna come front and center over the coming months as, in my opinion, we're gonna have a government shutdown. Mm -hmm. You know, let's just plainly say it. The US government continues to spend money it doesn't have, and they are borrowing to come up with that difference. As the economy- From the treasury market. Yes. And full, as, circle for, full circle for people who are really learning. And right as now. the economy is growing, the market is less concerned. But if you start to have a slower growth economy, interest rates are high. They're paying a lot to service the debt. That's where the market becomes fixated on. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. At a certain point, the government can't keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard this my entire career. OK, yeah. 24 years in the financial services business. Yeah. What is the constant narrative? We can't keep taking on this debt. And my reply constantly is, look around the world, people. Our debt to GDP is nowhere near where some of these other nations are at. And I got news for you. You might not want to hear this. We can take on a lot more debt. Now, I'm not saying we should. There's a difference between should we and can we. Yeah, absolutely. But there's a lot more borrowing the government can do, and I hate to say that. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's, that's well said. And that's that's why it's been in the news, and that's why I've seen some fluctuation in yields, and yields yep. went back down yesterday. So yesterday was very smooth. Uh, everything the market Yesterday's wanted. Yesterday's market action got me going, and that's because got of, me going. Ironically, you are because of the treasury market. My goodness, yesterday was was just steak dinner, baby. Right, and that's that's because the yields went down following the Treasury announcement. I mean, that the market got All the what fixings, it wanted. loaded oh, baked potato. It did, absolutely. Mac and cheese, yeah. Get some truffle in that? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, I'm in. Lobster mac and cheese. Lobster mac and cheese. Yeah. Jenna, we're painting the picture over here. Yeah. Yeah, so yesterday was a good day for, for what the market wanted to hear. So hopefully that helps listeners. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go too much more in the weeds here. I think that's probably enough. No, that's a di- great. A digestible amount. Well, before, um, we'll skip the financial planning topic of the week, because I think we've already, Professor Whitaker was, was on deck today. I, yeah, I got on my soapbox, so. Very well done. Hopefully. Very, very well done. Hopefully. Well, um, I do want to do a quick uh, promotion here for uh, Blueberry. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can get your first month of Blueberry Podcasting uh, hosting for free with the promo code JESSUPWEALTH. That's all lowercase, no spaces, JESSUPWEALTH. Use the hosting estimator on their site to determine the best plan for you. And don't forget that's JESSUPWEALTH for your first month free. So Nick, it's November 2nd. 
the year is 2023. We don't have any listener questions this week. Anything you wanna leave our listeners and viewers off with? Your final Professor Whitaker words of wisdom. Um, well, a, lot of, a lot of pressure on that. Final Professor Whitaker words of wisdom. I don't have I don't have a lot on top of what I've said. There's uncertainty with the yield curve uh, and, and rates. This is the kind of market we're in. We've been talking about it for months. Uh, don't don't panic. Don't don't let CNBC stress you out. Um, I like that. It, it, it will be okay. I like that. My words of wisdom. I know Mark and you talked about it on the podcast last week. Um, the market very rarely is down four months in a row. And the market was down in August, September, and October. And when I look at sentiment levels, I look at technical levels on the market, like the 50-day, 200-day moving average, 10-day. Um, I look at uh, equity exposure levels. Things were screaming to me over the past week of extreme oversold conditions on a short-term basis. Mm -hmm. So um, this is by no means guaranteed. But my strong opinion is um, we're going to get a rally into year-end. And um, this, based upon the data I'm seeing, personal opinion, personally, I would not be underweight risk assets right now. But that's just my opinion. If you have a proper long-term time horizon, you're invested in line with your goal to risk tolerances, yeah, yeah, goals, yeah, yeah. and objectives, <laughs> my compliance side comes out. Yeah. But um, as long as all those boxes are checked. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you've got a longer-term time horizon, you know, you, you want to be buying stocks when they're on sale. You want to be buying them when there's blood in the streets. And I'm just going to throw it out there, Nick. There was blood in the streets over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? People absolutely. were concerned. Yeah. I'm seeing fear. Mm -hmm. And the 10% correction, people are simulating it. It's like, okay, well, the market just recovered in May, June, July, and that's it. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's it. So that's where I'll leave our listeners off. So uh, thank you for joining us for episode 225 of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Myself, Nick Whitaker, Jenna, Mark, we hope you have a good rest of your week. Nick, thank you for being our guest here this week, and we'll see everyone soon. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.